This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. I was recently in New York City attending the Revolutionary Love Conference, Disruptive Ethics to Dismantle Racism. The weekend features some of the most powerful moral leaders in this country. Dr. William Barber, who spoke at the DNC and is founder of the Moral Mondays movement. Uh, filmmaker, journalist Bill Moyers. Uh, the founder of the Revolutionary Love Project, Valerie Kaur, was also there. And you might recognize her from the viral video that 26 million people saw of a speech she gave on New Year's Eve after the 2016 election where she said that this may not be the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. Those words reverberated and set to motion uh, the powerful movement uh, that she's founded. And she and I met in the basement of Middle Collegiate Church to further discuss her work. Stay tuned. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. I'm so delighted. And I'm catching you here in New York for this amazing event, Revolutionary Love. You're founder of this event, right? I'm the founder of the Revolutionary Love Project, and we have partnered with Middle Collegiate Church here in New York City to hold the Revolutionary Love Conference. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea of Revolutionary Love come from? Well, I've been an activist for about more than 15 years, ever since hate crimes broke out after September 11th. You were personally affected by that. I'm a Sikh American, and the first person killed in a hate crime after September 11th was a man I called uncle. Bobir Singh Sodhi was murdered on September 15th. He was the first of dozens who were killed in the aftermath of 9-11, but whose stories barely made the evening news. His murder really made me an activist. And so for the last 15-some years, um, I've been using my law degree, my film camera, uh, my organizer's hat to work with communities in the face of violence and justice. Not just my own community, but working on issues of solitary confinement, immigration detention, racial profiling, marriage equality. My most recent issue was net neutrality. Um, This is different. This is different than a kind of a, you know, the progressive movements. Um, At least what I'm hearing, (laughs) people are uh, talking about or thinking about. Uh, This feels different. That's right. That's right. How how would you characterize the difference? Um, Well, I'll tell you how I came to it. Uh, It it came in a moment of crisis. About a year or so ago, uh, when hate crimes broke out on our national landscape during this last election season, uh, I looked at my son and realized that a generation of activism had not yet made the country safer for him, for a little brown boy who may wear a turban one day as part of his faith. Um, And I uh, left my job at Stanford Law School, and I began to really think deeply about what has actually created lasting change for the communities I've served. And it never depended on my lawsuit or never depended on my film or op-ed. Those were necessary ingredients for any movement. But any time I actually witnessed lasting change, it came down to a surprising question. Is love present here? Anytime a community in the face of massacre or crisis received love from the community around them, they were emboldened to respond in creative and loving ways. In the absence of that, nothing changed. In fact, Hannah Arendt says isolation breeds despair. And so people left in isolation with their own hurt 
that only bred more violence and destruction. Mm. And what's the antidote to isolation? It's the ethic of love. But I'm, I'm a lawyer, right? So I, I never took love seriously. Right. Either. Most people would say it's, it's weak or <laughs> yeah. like, what are you talking about? Let's be serious. This is yeah. politics. It's about power. That's right. Because love is a feeling in our nation right now. Love is a sentiment inscribed in a Hallmark card. Love is too anemic, too fickle, too um, sentimental to be a political force. But I went back and, and studied again Gandhi, King, Mandela, Chavez, and understood that <laughs> any social justice movement, that has changed the course of this nation had love as the ethic beating at its heart. You're talking about a civil rights movement with Martin Luther King? Yes. What other movements would you point to that had love as the kind of a, the central heartbeat of, uh, you know, what kept people going? The only way that Gandhi freed India was by calling people to their higher selves, calling people to a, a, a path of love that... Uh, gave them the courage that they did not know they had to put their bodies, their breaths, their blood on the line through nonviolent means. You don't find that kind of courage out of duty or out of obligation. There has to be something deeper. You said in your uh, talk uh, during this conference, you were less interested in getting Trump out of office than you were addressing the conditions that led to a Trump. Can you talk more about that? It's clear to me that in these last hundred days of this administration that we have been fighting policy battles. We fought the first Muslim ban, the second Muslim ban, fought to protect health care. We're still fighting these fights in Congress and courts and in the streets. But no number of policy wins will actually solve the conditions that gave rise to this presidency. What are those conditions? The sense of widespread anxiety, rage, this history of white nationalism, white supremacy that has now gripped the minds of large segments of this population and has now captured institutions of power. And so I'm interested in changing the conditions that gave rise to not just this presidency, but what the Southern Poverty Law Center has called the era of enormous rage. Because we know that anytime a government targets a particular people, criminalizes a people, not for anything they've done, but for who they are, then it emboldens ordinary people to enact on their darker impulses. And we see hate crimes go up. Yeah, it's, it's happening everywhere now, isn't it? State violence is always tethered to private violence. We've known this throughout the history Wait, of our nation. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, whenever we see violence perpetuated by the state, it emboldens private citizens to enact uh on their act on their biases and we see violence break out so acts of violence are always nurtured in the shared moral imagination before they ever find public expression state violence is always tethered to private violence and that's why this presidency is just the the symptom of something much deeper um, that needs to shift in american consciousness the way to stop state violence and the private violence that we're seeing in our city streets and across America today against black and brown and trans bodies. The way to stop that is by shifting consciousness. Otherwise, we'll continue to fight policy battles for decades to come and see another generation raised like my son. Who are the, who do you think should be part of this movement? Who are you inviting in? Are you really focusing on those who would consider themselves social justice activists first and foremost? Some people say, um, why are you preaching to the choir? <laughs> and I say... Yeah, that we're fine. <laughs> you don't need to talk about love, right? right? We're, right. We're all, we already know what we're doing. We're fighting for the, the cause. and um, so. But remember, we've, we've taken in love as, um, 
as a sentiment in a Hallmark card, right? We, we've taken in love as a feeling. And so we can say that we are doing something good because we feel love. We pray for all those in harm's way, but we're not actually necessarily strategic about what we're doing with that love, what that looks like out in the street. And so I'm interested in calling the choir out of the church, mm. <laughs> out of the darkness and into the streets. I'm interested in how to point people to what that love looks like in the flesh. What does it look like in our organizing? What does it look like in our political campaigns? What does it look like in the form of civil disobedience today? Revolutionary love, I think, is a, is a form of civil disobedience in that it is um, resisting the violence that we are hearing and feeling uh, all around us, not just in our news, but uh, in, in our own bodies. There is a sense of hopelessness um, that many social justice people feel, or anger, you were talking about rage, yes. or fury uh, that people may feel or be expressed. I personally have, other than um, have these amazing um, people that I spend time in the Democracy in Color studio, often don't turn on the, t- the news. Uh, I feel depressed. Yeah. Um, is this a way for people to feel better about the work that they feel needs to happen in the world, or is there something more? There's something more. Um, Hope as a concept is not serving me right now either. <laughs> uh, and so if people are feeling hopeless, if they're feeling a sense of despair, I say that's okay because this time warrants that. Our rage, our despair, uh, this is exactly what this time of moral, political, and crisis requires us. We, we are required to name this moment as a dark moment. The future is dark. What I'm asking us, what I've been asking myself, what I've been asking others since New Year's Eve, is what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? Mm. What if our America is not dead, but a country still waiting to be born? You see, Langston Hughes said, let America be America again. America never was America to me. Mm. And yet I make this vow that America still must be. And so, and so to own the dark means to own that we as a nation have never confronted our history of genocide, of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the way that racism and sexism and xenophobia and white supremacy still structure our lives. To own that is to say we were never the city on the hill in the first place. We have not fallen because it was a lie to begin with. This is a dark moment, but it is a pregnant moment. Because more people have been awakened, millions of people have been awakened since this election in ways that activists like me who've been in the trenches for so many years have never seen before. And if there's any source of hope, it's that. It's that we are awakened to the darkness. Mm. Is this movement a movement about, I mean, just to put it in the most direct terms, loving Trump supporters? Is it about that? That's a small part of it. <laughs> but the way I'm defining love, you know, in our country, we think of love as a feeling followed by a commitment. We think about that even in our own lives. But we know that actually to stay in a long-term marriage or to raise children, that the feeling waxes and wanes. Love is a commitment first, followed by a feeling. If those of us who know how to love well know that to be true about love, then what does it mean to extend that love out beyond our intimate relations? What does it mean to love others 
love our opponents, and that's where Trump supporters may fall for some of us, and love ourselves. So I'm drawing from the definition of love that Eric Fromm and Bell Hooks have been using. I'm defining love as a commitment to extend our will to others, opponents, and ourselves. So the question is, what does it mean to love others? What does it mean to love others? Those To look upon the faces of those who do not look like us and say, sister, brother, I see you. I choose to love you, and therefore I will fight for you when you are in harm's way. What, what does that kind of love take? It requires us to ask the question, who are you? What is at stake for you? What is my role in your flourishing? What is your role in mine? You see, we think as progressives that we're good about loving others and standing up in solidarity, but we haven't yet done the work of hearing the stories of those from other communities, really understanding the stories at Standing Rock, understanding the stories at Ferguson, understanding the stories of refugees coming in from Syria. That's what it takes to love others is to listen to each other's stories. It really really resonates with me because I've had experiences in progressive movements, the anti-war movement, among others. Uh, where people who were active in it still held racist beliefs. Oh, yes. Still were classist. Still had, you know, uh, the progressive movement still fraught with these problems. Absolutely. We're trying to change a world that we are actually part of the problem in, I guess. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. So, so, So love as a commitment is an orientation. To, to, to hear one another's stories, even those who we think we're good allies to already. The second part of love is love for opponents. This is what you had asked me about. Love for opponents. And this is what Gandhi and King talked about. This is what Jesus preached about when he said, love thy enemy. It is the hardest thing for the human psyche. Say, very difficult. Yeah. I think f- forgiveness, Dr. King said, is the first step toward loving thy enemy. I say that it is the last step. Because loving opponents is really about liberating ourselves first. Loving opponents requires us to hold our moral outrage and our trauma in community. Because if we hold it in isolation, then we will ourselves start to become the very thing that we oppose. We start to become hateful. We refuse, we decide, we refuse to hate our opponent because we refuse to be like them. So the first step towards loving one's enemy is to hold our pain in community and commit to the path of love in the first place. And once we do that, we can release some of that trauma so that maybe one day we can hear their stories. We can see them not as evil oppressors, but as frail people who themselves are living under a sense of threat. We may not agree with the sources of that threat. We may think it's an illusion that they feel threatened. There's so many supporters who voted for this president feel as though that they are losing economic dominion, cultural dominion, over this nation. And it's true. And so what they need to do is process their unresolved grief. And we have not had any mechanisms to do that. We have not, on the progressive side, held up a picture of a nation that includes them too. At least we have not communicated that to them. And so here comes a demagogue and gives them a home and channels that unresolved grief into racism, xenophobia, and rage, white rage, and we have the election results that we have. And so I believe that loving our opponents is not actually not really just about them. It's about our own liberation. Because once we hear their stories, we understand the cultural forces that allow them 
to hurt us. We understand the institutions of power that allow them to support policies that hurt us. And then we are smarter about our movement building. We design movement building that's not just about the legal framework, which is winning the next policy battle, winning the next lawsuit, passing the next piece of legislation. We design a vision of a nation that is that 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 includes their liberation and flourishing too. Because here's the truth. I will sit with anyone who voted for this president and tell them, and I have, that I believe that their vote was a moral failing, either because they supported the racism, sexism, xenophobia that this president inhabits, or because they did not think it was a deal breaker. Both, but I, both are moral failings. Both are moral failings. But to use the, mor- the word, to use, to bring morality into politics, it seems like at some somewhere along the way, uh, we lost touch that uh, politics could be expression of morality, or we would have this sense of things that are right and things that are wrong. And even a hundred days uh, into the Trump presidency, um, the the sands are shifting under our feet. What's right? What's wrong? Is that so important? Is that the way you're supposed to talk about people or do people? Uh, and so, to bring morality is actually a very that's that's because a, yeah yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's because the last several decades, the religious right has monopolized morality in this country. And so morality is one directional. It is a way to judge others. And so if I, when I sit with a Trump supporter and I say, I believe these are moral failings, I need to own my moral failing too. And so I tell them it was my moral failing that I never drew close to hear your story. Because as for me, as an activist to own my own experience, I've with so many communities over the last 15 years, I have never sat down with poor white working class people in Appalachia and thought about their health care, <laughs> thought, thought about how white privilege um, seems to uh, deny the way that they are still struggling for generations and generations. I have, I have never fought for them. Well, you have a different experience than me. I have Trump supporters in my own immediate family. And I think for some of us who do um, have contact with people, um, it's even more painful. Like, is our focus to change them? It sounds like you're saying our focus is to first change ourselves and to heal ourselves. What can that look like? What What can you create to hold? You say heal trauma in community. What What is that? What is that? Like, how do you create that space? Hannah Arendt, this beautiful philosopher who I still hold on to. describes two spheres, the private sphere and the public sphere. When we feel under threat and when we um, experience violence, it pushes us down into the private sphere where there is no language, there is no sense. We are alone in our trauma. We are isolated. And we know that out of isolation, that breeds despair and rage and hate, which could be enacted out in violence toward others or toward ourselves. How do we return to the public sphere? She says the act of telling the story returns us to the public sphere. The act of giving language to all that that has been done to us, to making order of the chaos and the pain and the trauma, the act of telling the story returns us to the public sphere. And that story, if others are holding our story in community, then it becomes uh, not only Uh, redemptive, but restorative. It it returns us to uh, 
a community that can then mobilize together. I think that the reason I um, believe so deeply in the power of stories is that it is the way that we hold trauma for those communities of color who have been in harm's way, who are facing the police killings and the hate crimes and the detentions and the deportations. Our stories need to be held in community. And that is how we can commit to creative and loving action. But it also means, what does it mean to love one's opponents? Is to hear the stories of those who hurt us. Because in their stories, we're understanding that they too are acting out of a sense of threat. We're listening to the story, not for its veracity, but to understand their pain, to acknowledge their pain. To acknowledge their pain is to acknowledge their humanity. And to acknowledge their humanity is to know that everyone has a story that has been waiting, that needs to be told. <laughs> for us to repair what has been torn asunder in our nation. It's bigger than an election cycle. Oh, We've much bigger. said that before. It's a transformational idea. Yes. And, you know, we've talked about revolutionary love for others and revolutionary love for opponents. There is a third part here that I've been talking about, too, and I just need to name it. Revolutionary love for ourselves. Because Gandhi and King and our social justice leaders in the past, they got the first two right. But they didn't talk very much about what it means to love ourselves. This is a womanist intervention. Mm -hmm. This is Bell Hooks. This is Audre Lorde who says, caring for myself is not an act of self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. What I'm seeing 100 days into this administration is that we are beginning to feel tired and fatigued. (laughs) And I'm seeing especially the weight on... I'm I'm seeing especially the weight on people of color and on women of color. Because too often women of color not only bear the brunt of oppression, but struggles against oppression. Our movements for liberation are fought on our backs or over our dead bodies. We are tasked to hold families and communities together. We mistake our suffering for service, but it's time for a new way. I think it's time for us. It's so easy to start to mirror the the fear, the rage, the despair that we're fighting. But I'm calling us to start to embody the dignity, the wellness, the care, even the joy that we want for the rest of the world in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own bodies. And that's why I believe joy is a form of moral resistance. And I am also thinking about how much of the, the generation they call millennials. You consider yourself a millennial. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest You're millennial. You're the oldest millennial. <laughs> but I hear in these college classrooms people talking about self-care. Um, generation X, we, you know, activists burned, we burned out. You know, we got <laughs> right. haggard and tired and uh, never uh, really focused on self-care. So it's, uh, it's a new thing. And um I think it's a gener- maybe a, the potential of the generational thing because the fights that we have in front of us seem like they're so long. It feels like there's a long road ahead of us. If we don't embody the possibilities, how will we know that they are possible? If we don't practice them in our own homes, how will we know that they are, they are possible for the human family? <laughs> I learned this um, in my son is now two and a half, and we... Um, started a practice called Evening Edition, where every evening we we have story time, we have dance time, we have bath time, we do our prayers. It takes like, it takes 90 minutes. It's a 90 minute program. <laughs> it's not a bedtime. It's a 90 minute program. Um, and we do it first. I thought, well, I, our lives as activists are so 
tumultuous that at least this is the structure. But I began to realize on election night, actually, as the election results were coming in and the horror started to lodge in my throat, my little boy tugged at my shirt and said, Mommy, story time. (laughs) And I looked at my husband and I said, now on a night like this? And he said, every night, even a night like this. And so we read stories and dance time. Now, on a night like this, <laughs> even on a night like this, we were dancing to oh, Baby, You're a Firework. <laughs> My son is running circles around me, and I'm just like, and I start to dance with him. And pretty soon, I'm, I start to laugh. I feel joy. <laughs> and the next moment, I realize, oh, we're going to be okay. Because I'm going to fight for him. I love him. I'm going to fight for him. I'm going to fight for us. And if this is our foundation, if joy in our bodies is our foundation, then we'll be able to last. Mm. Well, that gives me some sense of, like I personally, emotionally and uh, spiritually am drawn to the message of love. And especially when we're, we're reaching around for what we can do right now. Um, are you surprised? I mean, you built this movement just really <laughs> in three, is it three months? And I got the, if I got the math right, we, we launched the revolutionary love project in September. Okay. So it's been six, seven months. And, and it was a need for our communities who had already felt the time in our nation to be dark, but after the election, after the election, millions of people who had the choice to be inoculated by their privilege decided not to retreat into that privilege. They could feel the darkness too. And that's why this message of the darkness of the womb and not the tomb, that's why this call to revolutionary love, I think, is seizing so many people's hearts. What do you and that's why I think it's, it's the call of our times. It's the call of our times, yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. What do you want to see happen now? I like a person who takes a moment to think. I just want to like, it's a podcast, but we're going to take a moment here uh, at the basement of Middle Church, or this is our impromptu studio, to think. We don't do enough of that. I know I don't. It's a big question. It's a big question. The easy answer is to say, I want you all go... I want you all go to (laughs) revolutionarylove.net and sign the Declaration of Revolutionary Love and you'll be getting emails from us about community dialogues and film screenings and get out the vote campaigns. Oh, so you're doing a bunch of activities. Oh, yeah. We had a National Day of Action on Valentine's Day. We reclaimed now Valentine's Day as a day of revolutionary love with Eve Ensler and One Billion Rising and Van Jones and Love Army and Reverend William Barber and a coalition of faith leaders. And we're sending out calls to action every couple of weeks. We just let them help lead a massive act of civil disobedience in Los Angeles at ISIS Detention Center. Every so week or so, you will be getting emails from me, from our team, and we are band of volunteers, yeah, by the way. Yeah, you're all volunteer, <laughs> which was the other thing that was remarkable. All right, so we can go to... So you could website. go that. You could do that. There, yeah. are, there are places for you to go um, to take action with us. Mm-hmm. But I think I want you to do... I think I want you to do this. And I'm wondering if it's possible to pause for a second. There's something <laughs> I want to read you. <laughs> okay. You did a YouTube video. 
Was that was that on uh, New Year's Eve? That was on New Year's Eve. Okay. What happened after that? You did the video. Well, you, you give a speech, basically, essentially. <laughs> I've given many speeches in the last year, and I've said the same things in them. Right. <laughs> but that one video on New Year's Eve ended up going viral because it was the message that people wanted to hear, needed to hear after the election and before the inauguration. Mm-hmm. And it was this this 26 call. million views, first of all. <laughs> Right. That's incredible. Which were you surprised at that? I was shocked. I mean, I had things go viral before at 50,000 and I would be like overwhelmed. um, Really, I mean, imagine like, you know, 15 some years as activists in the trenches and you're trying to get the message out. You're making films and you're writing op-eds and you're doing TV and you're and this completely unexpected moment when the message actually reaches millions of people, not just in the in the U.S. It went viral in Israel. It was translated into Hebrew. It went viral throughout India. It was this call to revolutionary love that was more universal than I even knew. Wow. Um, it was <laughs> millions of people watching the rise of right-wing nationalism destroy the vision of what they believe their country to be, not just in the United States, but around the world. And it wasn't a manufactured hope. When I say (laughs) the midwife tells us to breathe and push, when I ask, what if, what if this is our moment of transition? It is a question. What if this is the moment? where uh, this darkness is the darkness of the womb and not the darkness of the tomb. It is a question because if we don't push, we will die. If we don't push, our nation will die. If we don't push our civilization as we know it, the the humanity we believe we can be uh, will perish. I believe the stakes are extraordinarily high right now. <laughs> stakes are, this is everything. This is everything. This it's is everything. Our, it's our, it's our safety. It's our, so then, then, this goes viral. <laughs> then we're only talking about a couple of months from the beginning of the year till now. Then what happened? You quit your job. You, you quit your job. So I had quit my job a year ago okay. this month All in right. order, you know, life as lawyer, activist, organizer, person, okay. taking it really seriously. And then I go off and I love the word love confronts me. And I, as a lawyer, have been taught to be suspicious of this term, mm. right? I've, I've been taught to cringe at the word love. Right. And I had to go back and do my research and understand suddenly about the problem in our country has never been with love. It's about how we talk about love. Um, and that is when we formed the Revolutionary Love Project mm-hmm. and began to sing the song, the song of, of revolutionary love. And after the election, around the time of the inauguration, it actually went viral on inauguration day. So that on the next day, the day of the Women's March, the day that millions of people marched across this country, people, my friends were tweet, were texting me pictures of signs at marches in Minneapolis and Minnesota, Wisconsin, Kansas, New York, Los Angeles, signs where people wrote, what if this is not the darkness of the tomb, the darkness of the womb? (laughs) My email, (laughs) I usually pride myself on keeping my inbox at zero, right? I have a team of volunteers. I don't even have an assistant. My email was at a thousand. 
And I couldn't get out from under a thousand letters from not just media requests and speaking requests, but letters from people, heartfelt letters from people. I am a single mother. I am writing you from prison. I am a sick girl. I am a, a, a young activist. People writing me and telling me their stories mm, mm, and mm. asking how how do we walk the path of love? And that gave me a mandate. And I, now, I now you have this amazing... <laughs> This amazing movement. Um, yeah. I, so our job now, our job, I'm about to leave in a week for a writing sabbatical. My job, I could keep speaking and calling people to love, but if I don't tell them how to walk it, then what good is it? If I say revolutionary love is the call of our times and I don't tell them, give them some insight, some wisdom about how to walk that path and how where are we supposed to go? That's right. <laughs> and so it's not that I have all the answers, but I, I, I have a treasure test um, of, of scriptures and songs and poems and tools and tactics from not just our wisdom and faith traditions, but from social justice movements of the past to lift up and to offer up in a new way. Because I, I believe love has to be mm. a secular ethic, right? It's a, it's a moral imperative. It's a path that anyone can come to no matter what our background to walk. And it's never been talked about that way in our country that's before. So, so that that's my task. No small task. All right. Well, <laughs> all right. So we're, you want to leave us with something? What, yeah. A little bit of inspiration, something that, that keeps you going. <laughs> um, I want to leave you with the words of my sister, J- Zadie Smith. Individual citizens are internally plural. They have within them the full range of behavioral possibilities. They are like complex musical scores from which certain melodies can be teased out and others ignored or suppressed depending, at least in part, on who is doing the conducting. At this moment, all over the world, and most recently in America, the conductors standing in front of this human orchestra have only the meanest and most banal melodies in mind. They are not very distant memory. There is no place on earth where they have not been played at one time or another. Those of us who remember, too, a finer music must try now to play it and encourage others, if we can, to sing a song, sing, to sing along. I believe the song that we can be singing is a song of revolutionary love. Mm. And you ask me, what what can we do? What can we do? I say, sing that song. Sing that song however you know how to sing it. Sing it in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces. Sing it in the streets. Sing it in your heart. Sing it in the halls of power. Mm. And if we sing it together, then our country, our world, will remember a finer music. Mm. Beautiful. (laughs) Valerie Cora, thank you so much for joining us in Democracy in Color. It has been such an honor. (laughs) I'm lifted. I'm lifted. This podcast is sponsored by Democracy in Color, recorded at Middle Collegiate Church in New York City and produced by myself and edited by Brian Matheson. Special thanks to the Democracy in Color podcast team, Lulu Matute, Charlene Chang, and Olivia Parker. You can listen to future episodes on democracyincolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes, and now Google Play. 
You can also connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. Until next time, thanks for joining us.